I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. The climate on the planet where the creatures live changes a lot, both cyclically and permanently. The cyclical changes are in part a product of the axial tilt of the planet, which impacts the creatures deeply. There are times when annually, after a period of scarcity, the other local life forms burst with sustenance and the regional temperature elevates. The creatures love this. They feel relief. They feel pleasure. It's very important to them. So important that they've started telling each other stories about this change, connecting it to other parts of their experience, other fears and hopes and beliefs, attempting to answer unanswered questions. The creatures love stories. Sometimes they take on a life of their own, and the creatures take them very literally. They become invested in some of these stories. Over time, those stories become so powerful, the creatures hear them and and take different actions based on what the story said. Sometimes these stories become the single guiding force in their lives, dictating everything they do, small and large. Sometimes these stories become so powerful that they change the course of history on their planet. And these myths, in some strange way, become at least part of their reality. You and I both, I mean, I'll speak for you if you you don't mind, but I think that you and I both identify as Jews, but we don't believe in God. Today, I'm talking to my friend Greg Epstein, who is a best-selling author an ordained secular rabbi and the humanist chaplain at MIT and Harvard. I thought this was a very Jewish thing um, to be like a member of a religion slash culture, but not necessarily believe in the theology. But I actually think more and more that a lot of religions have this. So here we are. We're secular Jews. And what does that mean? There's a holiday that I think we both celebrate for anybody from another planet, small child. What is the high level idea of what Passover is and how do we celebrate it? So Passover is, to me, the most important day on the Jewish calendar. It comes every year at around the beginning of the springtime, and that's uh, far from accidental. It is a holiday that involves a very elaborate ritual meal Mm. with very precisely articulated and prescribed ritual foods and the telling of an ancient story. Uh, and the, the essentially, the, it's the story of the biblical book of Exodus. It's the story of the prophet Moses and how he was born and grew up and became a prophet that led the people of Israel out of slavery and into freedom from Egypt into the land that we now call Israel-Palestine. It involves sitting around the table and going around and reading. In many families like mine, you read one person at a time. Each person takes turns. Another thing that I'll say uh, before we get into discussing it is that it's important for you know people to note that from my perspective and from the perspective that I was ordained into celebrating this holiday and, and at times leading celebrations in this holiday, 
this is the celebration of a work of fiction. And that really, you know, that's something that I, 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 I'm always reflecting on. The idea yeah. that I don't believe that the Exodus story literally happened. Right. And in fact, I believe based on archaeological evidence, based on literary analysis, based on anthropology and psychology as well, that this was a story that was fabricated by ancient Jews, you know, 2,000 to 2,500 or so years ago, as a way of kind of legitimizing the fact that, that they wanted to see themselves as the people not only in their little New Jersey-sized slice of land that were <laughs> that was shared by other peoples then and now, um, and it was in, to their advantage to feel like they were the main people in that land and not just sort of one among many, but that they were the main people in all of the world, that they were the chosen people and that this was the story of how they got to the place that they were chosen to be in and got to the situation where, where they're this sort of people set apart from other people. And that idea of one chosen people is actually more than a little bit abhorrent to me, Sasha. Yeah, yeah. The idea that one is held in captivity and then can go free is beautiful. Yeah. But the idea that it only gets to happen in this special way to one group of people um, and that I am lucky enough to be part of that people is is um, is an anathema. It is, is something that I really actively want to work to divorce myself from. Yeah. And so, you know, every year there's this sort of process that goes on again and again of, of how am I going to do that? How am I going to mark the beauty of the fact that I'm a person that comes from an ancestry, a culture, a civilization, um, a family, and and I'm, I want to mark that. And there's this beautiful way of marking it. But there's a message at the heart of marking it that I want to reject, I want to distance myself from, and I want to teach to my children now that it's not what it's really all about. Can you sort of walk us through the basics of, of your favorite and least favorite parts of Passover? Sure. I mean, first of all, I just want to say that you know, the idea of secular religious culture, right? The, the yeah. crossover between the idea of religion, which most people think of as, you know, as the belief in a deity. Um, even though there's much more sophisticated definitions. This paradox exists in all of the world's major religious traditions. Yeah. For me, Passover really has become both a kind of joyous moment that I look forward to with my family. And it's also a little bit uh, a source of anxiety for me each year as I think about what it is that I'm going to do this year to... Uh, celebrate this this thing, this holiday. If I could just like, if I could have three months grace on Passover this year, like, I'd take it. You know, like like I'll deal with that later. But it, it but comes could, up. But 
doesn't it have to be in the spring? Like, you couldn't have Passover in the summer. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I know. It, in, it, that's absolutely right. And by the way, one of the things about Passover that is really worth noting is so I, I lived for uh, about a year and a half in Israel. As soon as it hit Passover time, the weather completely changed. The land seemed completely different. These holidays are calibrated perfectly to correspond with dramatically changing seasons in a very important little tiny New Jersey sized slice of <laughs> land on the, on the face of the earth. And the, you know, there's the rains begin. Snowfall comes, depending on which holiday it is. The sun comes out. The crops bloom. It, you can really see it and feel it. And that's what these holidays come from. And it's also like the spring holidays. I mean, let's just take Passover and Easter. They're both stories of like, wow, things looked really bad. That was close. It looked like we were fucked. And then... Oh, my God, it worked out. Everything yeah. looks like it's going to be OK. And like that is winter into spring. And especially for most of history when, you know, winter is not just unpleasant. It can be could be fatal. And you didn't know if everybody in your group was going to make it. And like the stories around that change are, you know, so barely, barely, barely disguised. And there's a rhythm like that to our lives, I think. I mean, you know, I go in my life all the time from feeling like I'm fucked to feeling like <laughs> I'm going to make it. And, you know, and I try to work on equanimity. And it, it's probably the number one thing that I do work on. And, and I'm I'm happy about that. I'm proud of that even. But it's still... Um, that's how life goes. And, you know, and, and that's why the holiday resonates so strongly. What are the parts of it that you do that you don't feel connected to? I guess the bigger question is, how do you reframe Passover to be secular and to be relevant to what you believe? And what are the best parts of it that you carry through to another philosophy? Well, I was going through just now uh, what we have in my family, which is a binder of materials that um, each year gets added onto as we do Passover a, a new way. In 2017, we were looking at some new additions to the idea of, of reciting plagues. And it was like the 2017 version of the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad plagues. Right. And 2017 was one of those years, yeah. you know, we had just inaugurated President Donald Trump and things were lousy, it seemed. And you have a year like that and you feel like it's, you know, it's as bad as it's going to get. And you forget that you could then have a year like 2020 or 2021. That's Passover, right? That sort of up and down liberation, redemption, feeling of uh, captivity. But to me, the assembling each year of the new way of telling the story, the new way of expressing this with my family and my friends, the new way of, of thinking about it for myself. Who am I? Where am I? What am I trying to do? What have I become? And what am I becoming? And what are we becoming? 
that's really the beauty of it to me, I think. You know, every every year um, as we do something called asking the four questions, which are sort of four ancient questions that go back to ancient literature, asking four questions about why this meal is different. We then ask, how am I different this year than I was in the past? How are you different? How are we different? And what do we make of that? You know, it takes a little extra time at the dinner table, but but that's really the beauty. That's that's what I that's why I keep sticking this out. That's why I haven't given up on this this ritual yet, um, because the story of these characters like Moses, it really does help each year. You know, to sort of look at it through that lens, that literary lens, and and help us figure out. You know, okay, well, that was then. That's the story. That's what I'm told. Now what? Now who am I? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so the Haggadah, the the book, explain explain to our listeners what a Haggadah is. Yeah, the the Haggadah, which you know literally means the telling in Hebrew, um, the you know to tell the story. It's a literary text that tells the story of the Book of Exodus. Yeah. Every family who's doing this has one, and they're all a little different. And the one that I use, that we use in our house, is from Rabbi Peter Schweitzer, a secular rabbi who married me and my husband. And that one emphasizes the idea that, according to the story, we were enslaved and treated really poorly, and that was awful, and now we're free, and that's amazing. But we must use this story to remember that other people still now are literally and metaphorically you know, in bondage, enslaved, and that, like, we have to take this moment once a year to remember that not everybody may be as lucky as we are at this moment, and what are we going to do about it? I feel like is the, I mean, that's sort of how I think about it in terms of how can we take this very popular work of fiction and this celebration that's so beautiful and has so many amazing elements about it that are so much fun and so... I mean, the symbolic food is such an interesting thing that I feel like so powerful, this idea that you have all these little things you taste and with each one. Yeah, you can you can think of it as a great mindfulness exercise, right? That, yeah. that you know, that, to parse a meal into each ingredient and have each ingredient be meaningful in terms of its relationship to a story in our lives and our ancestors' lives and our history. I mean, th- we we simply don't get opportunities to do that or we don't take opportunities to do that other than a holiday like this. I mean, it's like this weird, like immersive experience. And also, I always just, I I always would say like, oh, it's the world's first drinking (laughs) game, which is probably totally unfair to pre-monotheistic, you know, drinking games. You might get sued by a pre-monotheistic drinking game for that. Yes. Well, or just be really missing out on something amazing (laughs) that they were doing um, way back when. But even the songs, I mean, Dianu is like so... Uh, I mean, it's amazing. It'll just be in your head till like June every year. It's, yeah. it's so it's good. It's really catchy. Die, 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 I, I don't know the origin of that particular tune, but I do know that a lot of the, the, the catchiest Jewish liturgical compositions, and there are a lot of them, um, a lot of the best tunes go back to like Slavic folk dances or Eastern European yeah. uh, non-Jewish 
uh, music. And, you know, you can trace a lot of the origins. But I, so, again, I don't know the one for Dainu. I can't do Dainu. The, Dainu is a, is a song that's in the Passover tradition that basically says, um, you know, if God, if only God had done this thing for you, it would be enough. If only he'd done this thing for you, it would be enough. Right, right, right. And, you know, the fact that he did all these wonderful things, you know, aren't you so happy with it? And, uh, you know, not only can I not do that, but then there are these sort of secular alternatives to it, which are like, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Lo dainu, lo dainu, oh. lo dainu. But they're really difficult, if at all possible, to sing in any kind of melody or song. And, you know, nobody wants to sing like humanity save the queen uh right and yeah no no um okay wait so okay what i keep coming back to though when we talk about it this way and like you know the the idea of like if we're describing why this is so important to an extraterrestrial let's say and why there is so much conflict around this piece of new jersey sized land and why this is the idea that this story like if we're secular and we see it as a work of fiction and we have so many works of literary fiction even ones that are really really old that do not in any way impact the way people live their lives other than in a college course maybe you know what i mean like how do you wrap your mind around the idea that there are some of these ancient stories some of these works of literature they're so powerful that they not only dictate how people live their lives but how people are willing to end someone else's life how do we wrap our mind around this idea that it's just a beautiful old story that's kind of messed up in some places but there's some parts we like about it and once a year we can have a feast and there are other stories where we don't have a feast um we just you know read gilgamesh and be on our way or not you know Um, how do how do you wrap your mind around that (laughs) yeah it's it's fun talking to you sasha about it and and with you i think i might actually have to worry that i might have to explain this all to an alien at some point um But in any case, to me, the idea of Passover really is enmeshed in the idea of ritual itself, right? The idea that we create who we are through the combination of small everyday actions and a bigger picture perspective on the world, right? That if we just have a bigger picture perspective on the world, but we have no idea what we're doing in each little everyday moment of our lives. That's really not enough, you know, to echo the, the, the song of Dainu. Yeah. Um, and if, but if we are only paying attention to little everyday moments in our lives, but we have no bigger picture perspective on why we think we're here, what we're trying to do with the limited time that we have and, and how we want the world to be, then the little moments themselves aren't enough to echo Dainu. And so to me, this is probably the the number one most powerful moment in my life where I get to reenact that process that people have gone through since ancient times of creating moments to tell the bigger story of who we are, where we came from, and where we're trying to go. You know, that's that's important. That process is important. And a lot of secular life loses track of it, loses touch with how to do it. Um, If we don't have some kind of ritual, some kind of prescribed moment to to call us back into that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think 
I mean, the the thing I really connect to is like this idea of like time travel. Like there is something amazing mm. about the idea of doing something, anything really ancient. I mean, it's like if you've ever go to like part of the world where buildings are much older than they are in the United States. Mm. And, you know, you have that feeling of like walking down a corridor or up steps that are a thousand years old and you have that moment where you think someone else was walking up these steps what were they thinking about what were they worrying about Mm. what were they you know what were their fears and hopes and like they were on these steps and I think so much of like the appeal of doing things that are really ancient and so much of the appeal of the illusion that we give ourselves often that things are ancient or air quotes traditional when they're actually relatively new is because we like that feeling of being connected through the generations back to some earlier person who could have never imagined what our life was like, but we can imagine theirs. I think there's something really powerful about that. And if you know that Passover was part of your family tradition, and you know, for many of us, for me, like I know the names of my great grandparents, but not much more after that. There's a horizon after which I don't know people's names. I don't know what village they came from, but I know they were Jews. And I can imagine like when I'm, you know, doing these things, I feel a connection to them that I don't have any other information about them to connect to besides that they were probably doing this on Passover or they were probably doing that on Rosh Hashanah. You know, I think there's something about that 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 we really do gravitate towards. But then, of course, even the most traditional version of what we think we're doing is so different from what anyone was doing a thousand years ago. So we kind of play a little trick on ourselves, too. We do. Yeah. I mean, it's the illusion Right. The sort of suspension of of disbelief, like they say that you're supposed to have in a movie theater. Yeah. The idea of like, wait, so one random person decided it was supposed to be this way X number of years ago. And now it's stuck there. Now we're stuck with that. And, you know, we can't we can't reimagine it no matter how racist it might seem or sexist it might seem or xenophobic. It might whatever it is. Right. I'm curious about what your Passovers growing up were like and what they're like now. Yeah. So. The childhood memory that I have of Passover is mostly with my Cuban-American family. My maternal grandparents were twice refugees. Mm. They uh, they fled as young adults from Eastern Europe, uh, left everything behind. Um, my grandfather had basically every single person in his entire extended family other than one brother die of the plague in oh as, my God. As the plague sort of came back uh you know around the 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 early you know years of the of the 20th century and managed to get himself to Cuba where he met my grandmother um and they built a life together had two daughters and then as those daughters began to come of age as my mother was turning 13 there was another revolution Castro took Cuba by force you know, they were very concerned that everything was going to be taken from them. You know, they had learned Spanish. My, you know, my my mother grew up knowing only Spanish with some Yiddish. And she got two days notice that she was going to have to flee Cuba by herself with nothing. Ultimately, she was separated from her family for a couple of years by U.S. immigration policies. Right. And so wow. then that family ultimately then came over to the U.S., 
and reunited, you know, you can imagine that there was some anxiety, some trauma uh, once everybody was able to catch up with one another. And yet it was a big Cuban Jewish family that would get together all the time. And and I would would go to these big seders and I had absolutely no knowledge of nor interest in what was being said other than the (laughs) basic parameters of like Moses, 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 matzah, 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 (laughs) you know, maror, you know, like bitter herbs. Okay, I taste the bitter bitter herb. That's sort of interesting, you know, The bread doesn't have time to rise. Yeah, yeah. The the basic, basic parameters, I, I got you. Uh, yeah. You know, I was a kid that liked to, to to read and get some attention for it. So, you know, oh, you want me to read part of the Seder? Sure, I'll, I'll perform it. Be delighted. Uh, but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, I'm happy to do that for you. Thank you very much. But other than that, it was like playing under the table with my cousins, looking yeah. for a piece of matzah called the afikomen, which is, I mean, it's sort of strange custom. You know, you tape, you break off a piece of unleavened bread and you make this into the dessert for the whole family. How lovely. Um, <laughs> it sounds you know, terrible when you say it like that, but it's amazing. Yeah, first you have to search for it, and then you search for it, and apparently you're supposed to ransom it back to your parents for money. It was the creation of a regular moment that would get everybody from around the country, or at least from this little group of people, to schlep to one particular place to have a big dinner a big ritual meal once a year, and to do it the same exact way every year. And that's non-trivial. And it was non-trivial for me. Now, as a as an adult, you know, as a parent of a couple kids, as, you know, somebody that's traveled to, like, different parts of the world, and I'm trying now to, like, sort of set up a home in Boston, but I still feel like I'm in exile from New York City. Um, you know, it, it's, um, I'm raising my son to feel like he's in exile from New York city. That's um, good. That, that's good. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's important. Uh, you know, one day maybe he'll make that, that pilgrimage home. Yes. You know, he'll, maybe yes. he'll lead our family there like Moses. Yes, anyway. our ancestral home. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Next year in Queens. Um, yes. Next year in Queens. Right now, I have a much better sense of the philosophy behind the, the holiday and, and, and what I think it means to me, and, and yet less of a sense of, of what to do about it and what I want our family to feel like on those days and where I want us to be and, and how I want it to smell and things like that. that that's I, I feel like I'm still piecing it together day by day mm. to time by time. And it's it can be a little disconcerting, I think, for my wife who, you know, she she's an, uh, a humanist, atheist type like myself, but, you know, has a really strong grounded sense of what the holiday is supposed to smell like, taste like and feel like. Mm. And, and how do you recreate that with with, with new traditions and a new take on life, um, it's not an easy question. It, it's it's a beautiful question, but yeah. it's not an easy yeah. one. Yeah, that's so true. On some level, I feel like, you know, we're trying to bridge this gap as non-believers, but I also think every family, every time someone grows up and gets together with another person who grew up in another household and makes a household together, you have to answer all these questions. Even if you're totally, you're totally devout, you're from the exactly the same sect, you know, you have like all the same, like, you know, on a sheet of paper, you're identical philosophically. You still, all these little nuances. I mean, every pair of people, especially raising children, has to navigate this, these questions for whatever they're celebrating, whatever they do to break the monotony. And it's like, it is a really, it is a really deep question. 
That's a great point. I mean, just just the idea that you know we can we can have certain couplings, certain family pairings that would allow us the illusion um, of. Right. You know, it's just the way that it's always been done, but it really never is. We're always right. reconstructing and reconstructing our own identities and our, you know, our, our culture's identity as well. I grew up with one of the most profound symbols of my Jewish identity being the bagel with cream cheese and lox smoked salmon. For right? sure, for this sure. Was the, this was the way that I, I viscerally knew and could internalize, like like, a, like I imagine, you know, a, 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 a Christian taking in the Eucharist, that, that I was, <laughs> you know, yes. physically taking in my family's heritage. Yes. Um, but, but then, you know, first of all, like I, I learned, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago that like the bagel with lox and cream cheese is not really like it first. It's not even all that old. Right. Because not like they had cream cheese that you could just refrigerate, you know, for for very much of Jewish history. It's you know, it's not really as you know, I went to I went to study in Poland and in northern Europe and I saw how much smoked salmon they eat there. And it's like, oh, that's not our food. That's just something the Gentiles. Just, like that's just one more yeah. thing that we pulled from from the outsiders, the way that um, ultra Orthodox Jews now dress in this very particular black and white way that is just they're just wearing the nobility costume of the the Polish uh, nobility from, you know, the, the Christian Polish nobility from the 18th, 19th centuries. That's all they're what? doing. That's all they're what? wearing. They're just wearing what you wore in polite society if you were a successful Gentile Christian in Poland or someplace like Poland in the 19th century, the 18th century. That's all it is. Oh, my God. My mouth is wide open. I'm in shock. I'm yeah. in stunned these silence. Fur, these elaborate fur-trimmed yeah. hats. That was like the the you know the Apple Watch of the day. That was high tech. You go into the forest, you kill an animal, and you you know you very precisely put it together so that it will keep you warm in the winter. That was the best thing that people in in this you know sort of very barren region yeah. at times had, and and that's what you that's what you see reproduced. So you you know if you go to Tel Aviv now or someplace yeah. in the desert in Israel on a 99 degree hot day, you see you see these men walking around with this yeah. fur trimmed hat. Like you've got a full on animal on your head in this elaborately yeah. ritually constructed way. And, you know, the only reason you're doing it is because that's what a Polish nobleman would have worn in the wintertime 200 years ago. Oh, my God, Greg. That's crazy. I had <gasps> I had no idea. The weirdest thing for me now is that I don't even like bagels with cream cheese anymore. I don't even eat cream cheese anymore. Like bagels are still good to me, but like they don't have that feeling of home that they used to have. You like them as a friend. Yeah, exactly. Like like bagels <laughs> and I, we stopped going steady a long time ago, you know? you know. But the point is like, for me, I feel like I'm in that sense, like culturally marooned. You know, I don't really have access even to the symbols of my own childhood as a steadying force in my life. And I think that a lot of people actually experience some version of that where there's so much change now between one generation and another or even like sort of micro generations in yeah. our lives today that yeah. like the, the thing that gives one generation comfort is getting more and more impossible, I think, to transfer as an experience 
to the next generation. Even the things that we think of as so traditional, if you just go back far enough, it's something else. I mean, aren't there elements of Passover that long predate monotheism? That's a great question. So one of the reasons why Passover is sort of confusing to figure out, like, why are we doing each of these things is because it seems to be a kind of syncretistic festival that brings together multiple elements of ancient life. So, for example, um, the matzah uh, is something that goes back to the idea of agriculture, right, of cultivating crops, including uh, grains that you can bake into bread. Um, that process is only about 10,000 years old, um, which is really just the, the, you know, the very most recent layer of, of the history of the earth and the history of humanity. Also, the idea of yeast was considered really magical. Like you put this mm. yeast stuff into the bread and we still barely understand how exactly it works. Back then it was considered to have absolutely magical properties. It was supposed to it was supposed to be something divine. Like you were putting like a divine spark into yeah. this thing that was going to produce this reaction that people had no idea why it would produce it. And so one of the things that you would do, like if you have something that the deity is, you know, is, com is commanded you to do, but it has magical properties that you don't understand, like every now and then, you know, you, you take a step back from it as a way of saying like to the deity, please let this thing continue to work over time. Like we'll reserve some of its power so that yeah. you, you won't like use it, you know, you won't have us use it all up, right? Like like yeah. they didn't know whether it was a renewable resource or not, magically and supernaturally speaking. So that's one of the roots of the matzah ritual. But the, so, and those are the agricultural people in the land of Israel-Palestine. But on the other hand, there's this other ritual of a roasted lamb bone, which in the story is supposed to come from the idea that the firstborn son um, of the Egyptian people uh, was killed um, by God as a sort of final plague against the Egyptians, um, which, by the way, how barbaric, how despicable, yeah. how unthinkable. Yeah. I, I would never want to thank any deity whatsoever for killing the sons of my enemies. That It's just, yeah. it's just so disgusting. Yeah. But, you know, it's understandable, I guess, given history. But anyway, that most likely comes from the shepherding part of our history, right? So on in two different parts of the land that was Israel-Palestine, you had people that were crop-growing, bread-baking people to make a living to sustain themselves. And you had people that, that were um, relying on a more ancient tradition of keeping animals and killing them. And so at the same time of year, you want a festival for each thing. Right. Because it's this time of rebirth. So you're hoping that your animals will grow healthy this year, that you're hoping that the grass that they eat will grow healthy this year. And the plant, you know, and, and you're also hoping that your crops will. So the two things were combined at some point into this ancient festival where you've got both blood and lambs and bread and yeast. And it just the whole story, you know, beautifully combines the two. But most likely the, the, they're separate origins to the two halves of the festival. Uh, so what do, you, what do you hope like this myth, this story, this ritual is so connected to this New Jersey sized piece of land? The perceived importance has been the death of many people and yeah. the source of so much 
heartache and oppression and disaster. What do you hope this year on Passover? Like, what would you love for anybody celebrating Passover to think about as how we can move forward, how we Mm. can be better and be reborn? It's a beautiful question. I personally can't think about Passover this year without thinking about Israel and about where and how and if we go forward with this modern idea of the state of Israel. You know, if it's a story about about slavery and bondage and freedom, there comes a point where where it could become an absurd story if if people like me are complicit to the the oppression and the 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 bondage of another people. On a personal note, briefly, you know, Oz has that idea at the end that the internal map is what counts. And and that, to me, um, is the beauty of this holiday uh, for anybody that might come to it. You know, let, let's say you're, you know, you're from Bangladesh or you're from, you know, Argentina or whatever, and you just you marry somebody or you're dating somebody that's Jewish and, you know, you're, you're at a Seder and you're trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean for you? Um, and it's this idea that, you know, whether we're metaphorically speaking in the land that feels like home or in the land that feels like distance from home and, and, and oppression and suffering, we all want and need to feel a sense of inner safety and security like, like we're at home in who we are. And it requires both personal work and also work for broader social justice because you know if I don't do anything for myself you know what am I right but but if I'm if I'm only working on myself without without the world working to be better itself you know that's not enough and and so we all can do something at this time of year and any time of year to try to bridge the distance between the, the the place that we want to be in and the place that we are. Mm. And we're going to do better at that if we do it together. My next guest is Carol Cusack, who is a historian of religion at the University of Sydney. I'm so curious in your work, how you think about how Passover, Easter, Nowruz, other spring holidays are interconnected, even very ancient ones. The equinoxes, the spring and autumn equinoxes, are days when the amount of dark and the amount of light are exactly balanced in the 24 hours. And of course, they are crossed by the winter and summer solstices. In winter, obviously, the winter solstice is the day where there's the most dark and the least light. And in the summer solstice, there is the most light and the least dark. And there's a lot of very strong evidence that at least as far back as 3000 BC, maybe longer, people were capable of calendrical calculation. And so they knew when the shortest 
and the longest days were. And they also knew the points at which the cycle was perfectly balanced. And that's where we are now. You're experiencing the spring equinox. Here in Australia, of course, it's the autumn equinox, but it's the same phenomenon. Um, and so when we think about mythology and we think about ancient customs that might reflect this, we see that there's a lot of myth that talks about the power of darkness being overcome by the power of light or there being some sort of conflict where it looks like the light is going to be extinguished at the time of greatest dark and then it comes back. And of course the connection with spring, we have a lot of spring, usually goddesses, it's women, mm. associated with fecundity and fertility and the birth of little lambs and calves. Easter is the Christian festival, got connected to this idea of renewal and new life, obviously, because Jesus died and was resurrected in Christian theology. And so that fitted perfectly with a template that already existed uh, in many religions before Christianity even began. If we think about the way that Easter got its name, you probably know that in lots of European languages, it, it isn't called Easter, it isn't even a word that relates to Easter, um, because it's basically Christians adopted Passover. Easter was an Anglo-Saxon pagan goddess, as far as we can tell, and we have some kind of corroboration for her, I suppose, when we look at continental Germany, uh, because the festival is called Ostern, and the goddess there is called Ostara, which is very clearly the same name. And so when we think about the symbolism of eggs and rabbits and new life, the idea that these female figures come to be attached to a Christian festival, I think, is, is quite interesting. In a time when people didn't always survive the winter, when there was real fear of scarcity of food, you know, it's harsh conditions, when it was not a given that you were going to make it through till spring, how much of these festivals um, or the history of, of the modern festivals were really about, you know, the most basic, practical, literal sense of survival? I think there's a lot of truth in that. It's worth pointing out that normally around midwinter, when it became completely impossible to keep all your animals alive, there would be a large-scale slaughter. So yes, the Passover is an amazing story. You know, the Israelites are enslaved. Um, they originally went to Egypt as honoured guests because of the relationship that Joseph had with Pharaoh then. But after his death and generations went by, they were reduced to this terrible condition. And a leader was raised up, Moses, who has his own special story and narrative, a narrative also of escape. Um, Jewish boys were being killed. He was put in a little basket by his mother and found by an Egyptian princess, and so he survived. And he grows up to be the leader who's going to liberate the people. And the context is the context of the plagues, you know, which God is sending upon the Egyptians so that Pharaoh might release the Israelites. And the last of the 10 plagues is just the worst. It's the death of the firstborn child in every household. Um, 
And the Israelites are told, you know, it won't happen to you if you eat this special meal where you slaughter a lamb, you put blood on the uh, lintel posts of your house, and the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, who passes over, will actually know that you are, um, you know, a worshipper of Yahweh, of, of the Lord, and your family will be safe. And this meal is eaten hasty, hastily, and the Israelites are prepared to flee, and eventually they do flee, and they're getting through the Red Sea, which has parted, and Pharaoh's armies are chasing them like incredible rapid race. He's going to catch up, and then, of course, the Red Sea closes, and the armies of Pharaoh are drowned, and the Israelites are saved. Now, this is an amazingly powerful story. Um, you, you know, yeah. you can hardly get. Sounds like an action movie. The way you tell it, I've never been more into it than that. <laughs> you that really well, couldn't you? Um, and so they do have, like, the Israelites are delivered. They're given a completely new life. It's not just that they survive actual death and their children survive actual death, but they also are liberated from slavery. And so the idea that you commemorate this wonderful deliverance where your faith in God was completely vindicated, you know, it's it's really important. The Christian story is similar in the sense that the person that the disciples believe is the saviour gets killed and he actually dies. He, he isn't delivered at the yeah. last moment. And then the restoration, his resurrection into life again becomes this amazing celebration of renewal of faith and also um, of deliverance. So, you know, we've got a similar kind of story. Initially, Easter moved around in the calendar too. Yes. Quite a bit later, um, the Council of Nicaea in 325, that the date of Easter was actually stabilized. But it's even though it's more stable than Passover, it's not like December 25th. It's still, right, isn't it? And it still has to do with something to do with the, you know, most recent full moon. And there's all these other intricate parts of it. Yes, you're completely right. It is not as stable as the 25th of December for Christmas, which is just a set date. And that's how it is. Easter Sunday has to fall between the 25th of March and the 25th of April. It can never be earlier and it can never be later. And this is because it always falls, and this is just such an incredibly complicated thing, it falls on the Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. So you've got to have the yes. equinox date first. Then you move from the equinox to the full moon after the equinox. And then the next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And it sounds so pagan, you know, planning the, yes, <laughs> planning yes. the holiday based on the equinox and the full moon. I mean, you would never imagine. It's, as you say, it's remarkably astronomical. So 
Easter and Passover have another thing in common, which is the idea that you have a thing that you hide from children and they have to find it and they get a prize, right? And in, in obviously the Easter egg hunt, which is almost, you know, I mean, it's so popular, it's almost like secular at this point, you know, and, um, a, you know, a cultural norm. And then the Afikomen at Passover. You wrap up a piece of matzah and you put it somewhere in the house and, you know, the children go and look for it and get a prize. Is there some parallel between these two and between the idea that in spring, you know, there is something hidden, like the idea of all these buds and blossoms that have all this you know, flowers and fruit that are going to come bursting forth. But just at the very beginning, it looks like nothing's there, like almost like a magic trick. Like, is there some relation between those phenomena? I can honestly say I've never thought about that. I do know some weird things about the Easter egg hunting, though, because it's also connected to the rabbit as a symbol of Easter. Yeah. Uh, Who doesn't lay eggs, I might add. (laughs) The weird thing is that it seems that people believed that the rabbit did. (gasps) People thought that when these hares appeared around the equinox, that they actually did lay eggs, which is really weird. The egg is a symbol of new life. There are so many mythologies in which the world is born from a cosmic egg. You know, it, it just happens. So outside of uh, Passover and Easter, can you draw some connections with other spring festivals, um, you know, Nauru's, other, you know, ancient ones that we know a little bit about that have some thematic overlap in terms of, for example, rebirth? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Nauru's, which, of course, is a fantastic festival. And um, the banners for Nauru's are all over Sydney at the moment. We have quite a strong Iranian community here. And, of course, Nauru's is a New Year festival. And this is another interesting issue. Like, we celebrate New Year quite arbitrarily on the 1st of January. It's the way that it works. But in the ancient world, New Year was often at spring. Because, obviously, it was the point at which everything was coming back, becoming new, made new, new crops, new animals. It makes so much more sense. It does, totally. Um, And we know that in Mesopotamia and areas around, you know, what is is now um, Iran, Iraq, etc., that New Year rituals were incredibly powerful things. I mean, one of the major ancient texts, uh, the Enuma Elish, was a um, New Year, almost a text for a ritual or an enactment of Babylon and and its key god, um, Marduk. So, you know, we have this idea that things begin afresh, and so it's New Year. And this makes me want to ask you, as a person who lives in the Southern Hemisphere, I mean, all your, like, I really think that, you know, our holidays are often a reflection of what's happening in nature wherever they originated. And as a person who lives in a place where the calendar, right, you're still doing Easter, it's just fall for you, or Christmas close to the summer solstice, how does that impact you as a person, as a scholar who thinks about this, and then who lives in a place where you're experiencing the reverse? The weird thing about the European colonists was that they tried to recreate, like England, 
in a land that was completely different. If you look at Australia, like so many countries that used to be much more Christian, all our big holidays are around Christmas or Easter. Everyone gets time off work, whether they want it or not. And I think there's an argument that obviously religious studies people like myself make that it would be more just if you said, hey, everyone can have 10 religious holidays a year and people can take them whenever they like because it would make life easier for Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and so on, you know. But that we haven't got to that level of enlightenment. But when you're around totally secular people, we have a thing called Christmas in July. And, of course, the point is it means you get two Christmases, but everybody gets uh, to see all the beautiful decorations and there are parades and, and special meals and things like that. The other people who are really interested in being, you know, in opposite times in the calendar in Australia are modern pagans because, of course, the modern pagan, especially Wiccan, um, festival calendar uses the equinoxes and the solstices. A lot of groups stick with doing the stuff the way that it was done in Europe and others switch the festivals. So you get the appropriate weather and season A lot of people in Australia when I was a child, and that's a very long time ago, were um, still having, you know, gigantic hot Christmas dinners on days when it's hot. And I went to school wearing box-pleated heavy woolen tunics and long tights. You know, it was just normal. Nowadays, at least, school kids go to to school in a T-shirt and shorts. What about indigenous holidays that are connected to the solstice and equinox that are reflections of the actual time of year happening in Australia? There aren't any. Um, It's a really interesting situation. Indigenous Australian traditions are very scattered, like there were an enormous number of different peoples and different language groups, and everything is very area-specific. If you're on country, if you're in your territory, that's one thing. But the majority of Indigenous Australians identify quite strongly as Christians. There are some people who call themselves two laws people, which mean that they go to church, but they also do like initiation rituals and increased ceremonies, which are about Mm. fertility and things like that. But those things are not things that have been rolled out across the nation. I guess my last question is, How do you see spring rituals, spring celebrations moving and changing, evolving into the future? And what do you wish people better understood about our our connection to this time of year? Well, I suppose one thing is that we're currently in an environmental crisis, and everybody must know this, um, though sometimes it doesn't seem like they do. I think a lot of Rachel Carson's amazing book, Silent Spring, which I think was published in 63, a year after I was born, and she talked about the loss of birdsong especially being one of the signs that things weren't the same, you know, they really weren't that good. I think that spring celebrations should be, or I'd love them to be primarily about environmental healing. I think that we could all benefit from spring holidays being genuinely about renewal, the renewal of nature, the the renewal of our only home, this planet.
I do not believe that I am a chosen person. I do not believe I'm entitled to a specific piece of land, and I do not believe in a God, omnipotent and all-powerful or otherwise. But I do think of myself as part of a long chain of people, very few of whom I have any real concept of. I wish I could meet them all in both directions, my 10 times great-grandparents and my 10 times great-grandchildren. I wish I could really know them, understand them, see them. Traditions are one way we can create the illusion that we are closer to our ancestors and our descendants than we really are. One ancestor of mine, if you can call her that, who I do know very deeply is my mom. When I was a kid, she put on lovely Passover seders for our family. And she also created another spring holiday for me. When the dogwood tree outside our dining room would start to open its buds each spring, she created a little celebration for us called Blossom Day, centered around nothing more than the pleasure of knowing things would soon be brighter, warmer, more colorful, more full of life. Nature itself was enough. I think if we were to trace our ancestors back far enough, before our oldest gods, beyond our most entrenched, most ancient legends, we might find forebearers who honored spring simply and joyfully. Something to think about next time you notice a flower poking its petals through the earth and feel like celebrating. Thank you so much to my guests today, Greg Epstein, who is the author of Good Without God, and Carol Cusack, who is author most recently of Invented Religions. Join me next time when my guest will be my friend, actor Lily Rabe, and we're going to talk about something that honestly just fills me with dread. Write it down, put it on the notebook, put the thing, who is this from? What is this thing? Get the note. Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher, The Cosmatics, and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs. <laughs>